I'm Mark Harima. I'm CEO of New Light Technologies, and I beat the often path by turning greenhouse gas into something beautiful. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we celebrate unique and inspiring success stories, help us think outside the box in our lives and careers, and woohoo, do we have a good one today. Mark Harima is joining me, and he's the CEO and founder of New Light Technologies, a company with an out-of-this-world solution to climate change. By using nature as a guide, they're able to pull carbon and greenhouse gases straight from the air and create a physical, plastic-like material that they call air carbon, which can be used to make literally everything from cutlery to straws to clothing and just about anything else that plastic can make. It is truly a game changer. But there's one huge difference between air carbon and plastic. Air carbon is biodegradable, even faster than paper, actually. And it's truly one of the most realistic, impressive solutions I've ever encountered for drawing down carbon and incentivizing people in the right way to do this. And it's not just me who's taking notice on this. They've raised over $100 million in funding so far, and they have partners like Nike, Dell, Amazon Web Services, and more. In today's episode, you're going to get riled up and you're going to get excited. I know you will. And if you don't, I will be frankly shocked. Here's Mark Harima, CEO of New Light Technology. Well, welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, your website is phenomenal. It's one of those things that feels way too good to be true. How on earth is this possible? Are you sure you're not just pulling all of our legs here? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I've, I've heard that over the years and uh, particularly now. Uh, it's been almost 20 years since we started this. Um, and so I like to say, uh, uh, overnight in, in overnight in 20 years. Um, so look, it's, it's, it's been a hard journey. Um, you know, it, it took us 10 years to figure out how to replicate a process that happens in nature, do it on land, do it in a, in a cost effective way so that it could be scalable. Um, and you know, we love so much what we do and, and, and where things can go, but, um, but it wasn't easy. So I, I appreciate the sentiment. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of people that have really dedicated their lives. Um, certainly myself included to, to making this possible. Well, at this point in 2022, because you founded in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. So you're way ahead of the curve in the sense that you've been thinking about this a lot before it became the topic du jour. I mean, that said, People have been talking about these things since the 80s. They've just been ignoring them since the 80s. They say, oh, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. Now it's a problem. So within that time frame, you are ahead of the trend 20 years ago is before a lot of this became mainstream. So how in your life did you end up being ahead of this trend? How did you recognize that, A, this was a problem, and B, that this might be a solution to that problem? Well, I think... um I always get frustrated when people are just sort of shouting into the wind, shouting at each other. It's kind of like, all right, we get it. But like, that's not moving the ball forward. Like, what about some solutions? And, and when you looked at at greenhouse gas and climate change and, you know, the rhetoric, it's funny because the rhetoric in the 80s and especially in the 90s was, okay, we're fed up. We got to do something finally. <laughs> right. And then, and then it kind of still didn't go anywhere. And part of the reason it didn't go anywhere was because it was basically two camps, one camp more or less saying, you got to do something. The other camp saying, don't tell us to do something. You know, we don't want to be told that. Um, and so what was missing was sort of this like, okay, well, where, where can we agree? And so when we started, you know, the, the rhetoric back then was, um, we need to, 
either tax carbon or bury carbon. And look, there's a lot of merit to that, but there's also merit to the other side of that, which is that just costs a lot of money. So do you personally want to pay for that? Now, maybe, but there's a lot of people who don't. And so what we said was, all right, is there another way, something that people can agree on? And for us, that meant let's turn greenhouse gas into a resource to make products. And if you could do that, then all of a sudden you have a, a middle ground pathway where, um, you know, you don't have to ask somebody if they want to do good for the world. If you if you say, hey, look, I can take your emissions, turn it into useful product and pay you for those emissions. They're going to like that. Right. And if, if that product does something better than what's on the market, either better sustainability or better performance or whatever, or even better cost, then all of a sudden you have a truly consumer driven, market driven pathway to scale it. And that was the thing that, that got us most excited when we, when we got started. That makes sense. Have you seen the movie vice by any chance that movie? where uh, is that the Dick Cheney? Yeah, one? it is the Dick Cheney one where they talk about the progression of the president because he came up in politics and they talk about how they installed, I think it was Carter who installed solar panels on the white house. And then the next administration just ripped off all of the solar panels in an act of defiance against the climate change movement. So what you describe is, is how it has gone in the previous decades. There has been this fierce opposition, but what is so ingenious about solutions like yours and the way that you think about it is that you're finding ways that, like you said, everybody can agree on. And that's how the Nikes of this world are interested in partnering with you and these big organizations are coming in because you've figured out how to productize this waste. So what can you tell us about air carbon, how it works? And again, how on earth did you come up with the idea that this was literally possible? It just seems like a pipe dream at first glance. Yeah. Um, got a lot of that uh, early on. <laughs> uh, I got really sick my junior year in college and um, was very frustrating. Lost 25 pounds. Eventually was told I had internal bleeding, but they didn't know what it was. And um, so I was studying politics and political uh, philosophy. Um, but I had been super heavy into math and science and chem, um, uh, in high school so much so that when I got to college, that's why I wanted to explore, you know, history and religion, politics and all that stuff. Um, but when this health issue came about, I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go to med school, do a post back, go to med school and really focus on the science side to, to, to see what, how the heck I can fix this. Um, so a year went by, and, and that, that summer between my junior and senior year, um, I came across a newspaper article about methane emissions from, from cows. And uh, it turned out that after uh, a lot of searching and testing and so forth, um, I had uh, celiac, so I was gluten intolerant. Mm. Um, so if you, if you know much about celiac and gluten, uh, you can understand the connection between that and methane from cows. Um, so when I saw this article about solutions to solving uh, this methane issue, there was something, uh, very dramatically striking for me in this article, which was it talked about how each cow was, each dairy cow was burping about 600 liters of methane right. per day. Yep. And what I found so striking about that was the, the tangibility of it, right? Like climate change seems so big and broad and almost untouchable. Like what, what are you and I going to really do? Right. Um, but 600 liters, like that's, that's a defined quantity and you could do math with that. So methane has a, has a market value you, and you do that math. And it turned out to be about $20 of methane burped, uh, per cow 
per year. So you got a thousand cal farm, that's $20,000 of value into the air. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. Like that's real. Like, I mean, that's, you know, that's sending kid to college. Like that's real money. Um, and so I called up a friend of mine, uh, who, uh, I grew up with, he was doing biomedical engineering at Northwestern. And I just said, look, I think people are maybe looking at this the wrong way. You know, we're talking about taxing or bearing, but like there's all this carbon going to the air. Like, why don't we use it? So we started looking for uh, ways to do that. And early on, we discovered that there are microorganisms in nature, um, including and especially in the ocean, that eat methane and eat CO2 as their food source. Cool. Um, and so we were interested in that. And then we further discovered um, that when they grow by eating greenhouse gas, they also make this material inside of their cells called PHB. And, and none of us grow up learning about PHB, um, except for you. You did. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I discovered about it through your website, literally. I was looking at your website. I thought, oh, my God, what is going on here? Right. Just so happy. Uh, <laughs> but it's crazy because the PHB is, is in almost all life. And the other crazy thing is it turns out when you extract it, um, it becomes meltable. And since it's meltable, you can use it to make all these shapes and parts and pieces. So we're like, oh, wait a minute. So now you can feed greenhouse gas to microorganisms that'll turn it into this muscle-like material that can replace plastic. But because it's made throughout nature, it's a completely degradable material. And in the same way that when nature makes it, it's a net carbon sink, we can do the same thing. We use renewable power, feed greenhouse gas. Now all of a sudden you have this platform where you can make useful products from greenhouse gas and not only help decarbonize, but also help um, you know reduce the amount of plastic in the world. So that was like crazy compelling to us. And it was, for me at least, it was like this, that, that's it. I, I never looked back. Um, and then that started our journey. That's incredible. So with something as ambitious as this, and again, looking at the scale of the equipment that you have now, it's truly massive, these giant machines, pipes, all that around. How did you take those first steps back when it was just theoretical? I mean, I remember it was uh, yellow sticky pads on, you know, my parents' kitchen table and kind of like just dreaming, just what could this look like? And um, it wasn't something like I need to get stoked on the dream. It was just I was getting stoked on the dream. Like mm. um, the, the what in, in my mind, it was like, why couldn't this be massive? Like I and a lot of that was a really super healthy naivete about like how hard this was going to be. Um, like now I read articles about how it takes 20 years to bring a new material in, into the market. Had I seen that back then, I just wouldn't have believed that it was, uh, yeah, maybe for others. Uh, well now we're at 20 years and we're finally at, you know, right. <laughs> commercial scale. And you just launched two product line. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I think it was just like the, the vision was so compelling, um, to us. And, and, and I think for everybody that's different, right? Like, it doesn't matter what it is, but for, for, for us and for me, it was just like, it was so exciting about what it could be. And then that started the process of looking for microorganisms, uh, that could, that could do this. And, you know, when we started, um, we didn't have any money. I was a hotel, uh, bellhop and Kenton, our co-founder was a, was a valet. And we were just trying to like, you know, make money to stay alive. And, uh, then we had a lab at a university. And so we drive out there at night and, try to find these microorganisms and, and filter for them. Um, and then after a, a period of time, we raised our first round of capital and built a pilot plant. 
and that was kind of like our, our cave. <laughs> I mean, literally there was a point in time where, uh, about 90% of the clothing that I owned in life was in this facility because I just spent <laughs> all of my time there. Um, and I only went home basically to sleep and eat, uh, and, and it, so it became this, and we were in that facility for about 10 years and that's where we developed most of our core technology, lots and lots of patents. But then we started to get like, I mean, look, plenty of failures, a lot of setbacks, but like also incremental progress, some bigger than others. And it, we started to get some momentum. And then finally, after about 10 years of that, we scaled from a 10 foot tall reactor to a 50 foot tall reactor. And, uh, you know, I remember driving home and, and like not allowing myself to feel anything other than like mission, get it done. But then finally like, okay, we, we did it. And I'll tell you, uh, I got, I got a severe case of allergies there. My eyes watered up, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it was, uh, you know, after working on something for 10 years and finally seeing it go at scale was, was pretty special time. That's, that's remarkable. So you find these microorganisms, you realize this is possible. I'm assuming that microorganisms aren't at the heart of the technology today. So did you just emulate what they were doing or did you find a way to turn that into a mechanized robot or whatever? <laughs> How did you end up actually making it a product or a machine? I, I wish I could tell you that we 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 turned it into mechanized robots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> That's just pulling bullshit. Well, I I made that yeah. uh, all right, team. This is the next. We're going to mechanize. <laughs> That's the future. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <gonna> strike that. <laughs> uh, no, so um, the microorganisms are at the very heart and soul of what we Still. do. And, okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, people ask where where we got them from, and what I tell people is that, you know, we didn't have really any money back then. So we, we weren't like doing exotic field trips to Antarctica or something like that. These are, these are SoCal bugs. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it, it, the heart and soul is feeding greenhouse gas to these microorganisms that we found in California and they eat the greenhouse gas and we run them in a, a certain condition where they fill their cells with, with air carbon. And then we push them through a high pressure filter we, we purify into a fine white powder and then that powder is meltable and we turn that into pellets. And then once we have the pellets, we can make it into all kinds of shapes and parts and pieces. So yeah, you mentioned on the website that the meltability was one of the key turning points for it being a product. And, and there's a video or there's a photo of a handful of these pellets. People who know anything about the plastics industry know that most products begin as such pellets, whether it's a Coca-Cola bottle or anything else. So you've got these pellets that at least from my point of view, look exactly like plastic pellets do they behave more or less exactly like plastic pellets are there notable differences well it's important to get them into pellet form because all the world's machinery runs off of a pellet input structure um and so one of our kind of most core philosophies is that scalability requires um the ability to use existing equipment and existing infrastructure so that's why we melt it in, into pellets um, and that enables us to use all the, the world's existing injection molders and extrusion lines and stuff like that. Um, and then in terms of how they process, I mean, if you use our products, we hope that you actually don't notice the performance difference between that and the, the plastic that it's replacing. The big difference, of course, is that, look, why, why does the world care about plastic and addressing it? And the reason is plastic doesn't exist in nature. And, and, and that's so important because what it means is when it gets into nature, nature just doesn't understand it. So it doesn't have a way to eat it, 
right? Like if it was a banana peel that ended up in nature, nature would just eat it as food and off you go. But, but plastic is synthetic, so it doesn't understand it, so it stays around for a long, long time. The, the two biggest distinctions between our stuff and plastic is our material is made throughout nature. It's made in your body. It's made in most of the stuff that you see that's green and alive. So if it ends up in nature, nature eats it like a banana peel, like a tree leaf, and just reconsumes it. Um, and that's the difference between a natural material and a synthetic material. Um, and of course, the second big difference is when you make normal plastic, uh, it emits about three times its weight, more or less, uh, in, in CO2e whereas we're a net carbon sink. And so those are the two kind of major differentiators. And then we try to match or exceed on performance, you know, wherever we can. That's, that's incredible. And you have a chart that shows three different, it's a comparison between plastic in the ocean and cellulose and air carbon. Obviously, the line for plastic, it just never, basically, essentially never biodegrades at all. But then you show a pretty impressive line for cellulose, and air carbon is actually more biodegradable than even cellulose. Why is the comparison to cellulose important? What is the significance of cellulose? Well, because a lot of people think of cellulose as a baseline okay for the environment. It's basically paper, right? Cellulose is most of paper. And so when you think of like the world transitioning to paper straws or paper packaging, the feeling that we all get is, well, paper or cellulose is made throughout nature. So while nothing's perfect, it's it's much, much better than plastic and it's going to go away by virtue of, you know, effectively coming from nature. And so a lot of the degradability testing protocols incorporate that as a baseline. In other words, you got to do as good as, as cellulose or better. And we did third-party testing um, that showed that in simulated ocean conditions, our product actually went away slightly faster than cellulose. And that makes sense. The reason it makes sense is if you think of cellulose sort of like it's a structure like this and, and it's designed for strength, right? It's, it's what keeps the, the, the tree leaf sort of sticking straight up and out. It's, so it's a structural material, um, which is why it does break down in nature, but it, it can take a little bit of time. Um, like I learned that a tree leaf takes six to 12 months to go away in a forest. Like, you know, that's, that's actually quite a while. Probably it was a lot longer than I thought. Um, but PHB is different. So PHB is made for a very specific reason and that's as an energy reserve. Um, and so what it means is microorganisms and other forms of life use that to, it's like, it's like a power source. So it's designed to be eaten and consumed for energy, so you could see how something that's designed as food for nature would go away faster than than a structural support within nature. So they both go away, but but cellul- if if you can go away at least as fast as cellulose or better, that that gives the world the confidence that this stuff's not going to accumulate in 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 the wild. Well, you've got two product lines like we talked about. You've got the uh, clothing line, broadly speaking, and you've got uh, what you utensils, food, straws, uh, those kinds of things that you're releasing into the wild. When it comes to stuff like containing liquids, is that something that this product cannot do? Like, can I make a two liter bottle out of this? Or is that something that only plastic can do? Um, you certainly could do that. Um, and that's definitely on our on our, our pathway. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we face is the industry is so big. I mean, it's going to be nearing a, a trillion pounds per year uh, fairly soon. And our production capacity is just dramatically obviously less than that. It's, it's taken the world so much money and, and so many decades to get to that capacity. And unfortunately, uh, the output of plastics 
it isn't plateauing. It's not slowing down. In fact, it's, it's accelerating, which is like a super scary thought. Yeah. Um, so, uh, w- within that, that dynamic, we, there's so many things that we could make. We have to be strategic about what we're making. And, and basically the question that we ask internally is where can we have the most impact with, with the material that we've got and the time that we've got, where can we have the most impact? So the first place that, that we got excited about was if you look at ocean plastic pollution, oceans are basically filling up with fishing equipment and foodware. Um, and so both of those are, are in our crosshairs, but we wanted to start with foodware in part because there's a certain symbolism that we've all developed around the straw, right? Like no one likes a paper straw, but everyone knows or thinks that it's better for the environment. Um, but that's a great example of like the miss on the middle ground, right? Like where you're like, yeah, I care about the environment, but it really sucks that I can't like just finish my drink. Um, and so our straw is something that goes away as fast as paper, but it's something that is smooth, never gets soggy. And it's like, wow, like we can have products that are great for the environment that people enjoy also. Um, and then you do the same thing on our cutlery where we rolled out our coated paper products as well, which we think is such an important space. Um, and so mission one is to try to help address ocean plastic pollution with this, with air carbon. Then we go over to fashion and fashion is a space that just by virtue of the volumes alone, it just creates so much environmental damage. And so we're on a mission to see if we can help decarbonize that, that space by incorporating air carbon into these products. I think our partnership with Nike is a great example of that. Um, you know, obviously we've got our, our eyewear and our leather replacement goods. Um, so that's a space that we think we can have a huge impact. And also it kind of personalizes um, and, and makes carbon capture tangible in a way that, that we think is important. Um, and then the last space that we're focused on increasingly is automotive and like, you know, obviously automotive has done what it's done environmentally. So we want to help decarbonize that space as well with automotive components, interiors, and so forth. There's a million other things that we could do. Bottles is definitely one of them. We intend to get there. Um, it's just, there's a, <laughs> there's only, we can only grow, you know, so fast right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when Nike is partnering with you or they're exploring the technology, I think I read, is the idea that they might make a shoe entirely out of this stuff? Is that even remotely feasible? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't go into too many specifics uh, sure. exactly with, with what they're doing, but um, could you could you make an entire shoe out of air carbon? Yeah, you, you could. Um, obviously, there's a lot of different components to a shoe, and so there's there's a lot to that. But look, our our goal is to try to get um, to decarbonize products in as efficient way as we possibly can. So in some cases, that's going to be a complete replacement, like in the case of most foodware. In other cases, it's going to be, you know, some combination and partnering with, with our material, with other materials and, and just, you know, going along that journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we, we certainly hope that someday, you know, people are rock, rocking their, their air carbons and, uh, and love them. That's right. Air Jordan meet air carbon. It seems like a natural brand fit already. I love it. Um, all these products that we see on the shelves, so many things plastic, deodorant, toothbrushes, you name it, lining the shelves of every grocery store. Do you foresee a future where none of that is plastic anymore? You know, um, part of me wants to say yes, and, and a lot of that we want to address. And we, we can and we should. Um, on the other hand, it, it is important to note that plastic has done a lot of good. I mean, it, it's really easy to demonize plastic and say, you know, 
but but demonizing doesn't seem to to get too far. Plastic has a great role to play. It's it's a very lightweight material. It's responsible for a whole lot of carbon reduction by virtue of lightweighting and by virtue of making things hygienic. Um, and so I, I think there there is a role for plastic to play in society, particularly where it can be recycled and where you have long term durable parts. Um, and we, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that, right? Like going to all paper products, like it actually doesn't make sense in certain situations. Plastic is is better, but it's finding like, okay, do you need to make any straw or cutlery or anything out? No, you don't. You, like plastic are effectively forever materials where we can think of them that way. They just last so long. Why would you make something that you're going to use for a few seconds out of something that never goes away? So that's, I think, where society can and should shift. Um, and so when you think of like a deodorant stick, yeah, that probably shouldn't be made from from plastic that is never, you're going to use it for what, you know, a month and then it's gone. Um, but there's there's other stuff that that sticks around. Like the ocean's not filling up with car doors and, and, and shoes, right? It's filling up with the things that we mentioned. So um, I, we're, we're always careful like that, there's there's a good and, and bad to, to everything, right? And and plastic has plenty of good, so we don't want to demonize it. So I, no, so I guess the answer to your question is I don't think it's a complete replacement. I do think it'll be a, a chunky replacement, though. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And stuff like McDonald's or fast food that seems like an obvious thing because you you know you go like you said get a quick meal drive through. I'm always aware every time I go to a fast food place of the amount of garbage that you create almost instantly. They hand you this bag, you eat it, and there's the whole mess of garbage you just threw away. Why? Why does all of that? And again, if you get utensils, straws, pla- and and utensils wrapped in plastic, that's just double the foreverness for no reason. It's so crazy. Once once you realize, like next time you go to some like you know fast fast food place and you got your 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 plastic fork and knife and and you've got your, you know, your clamshell or whatever. And you think this, this stuff that I'm using right now will literally never go away in any like near term lifetime. I probably hundreds of this, this stuff is going to go sit somewhere forever effectively. It's insane when you start to think about it. And then you feel so bad, like putting it into some bin that, you know, last year in the U S we had 5% recycling rate. I mean, it's just, it's, it's atrocious. Um, so it's gotta be fixed and we can, and part of what we're inspired about is like, you know, 20 billion pounds approximately of plastic flow into the ocean every year. Like that, that's fixable. Like it's tangible and it can be done. Um, so, but you know, another space, speaking of, uh, going to like a fast food restaurant that a lot of people don't realize is when you get a, a, a paper cup, whether for soda or for coffee or whatever, that's a paper cup, but it's lined with plastic. The only reason that that paper cup isn't as terrible as your paper straw is simply because that paper cup is lined with plastic. What's what's the world is increasingly waking up to, and and it and it will soon hate you know maybe even more than plastic is those uh, paper products lined with plastic because they're the worst of every world. Because it's a mixed material, it can't compost right because that paper is now stuck to that plastic. And it can't be even recycled, even if there were good recycling rates, because it's mixed with, with paper. So you, you just have something that's just pure, pure bad. <laughs> yeah, just but, bad, bad, you know, bad. Yeah. yeah. So we were super, super excited to launch our um, coated paper products uh, a few months back. And, you know, we started with, with things like plates. Um, you know, you don't think a picnic plate is going to be that, <laughs> that evil product that I just mentioned. Right. But if you go run on the beach... 
you know, after a big weekend, you're going to see a ton of plates and bowls and stuff. That's, that's just as bad or, or even worse than, than plastic trash. Um, and those are some of the insidious things that are in society that a lot of us, just, you know, it, it takes time to realize, but, but we're going after that as, as hard as we can. That makes perfect sense. Um, and like you said, people just aren't aware that these uh, paper products, that they are so bad that they're coated with paper. Is it cost effective already to replace those things with your solution or is it getting more cost effective? Because obviously, unfortunately for many businesses, the primary factor is just how much is it going to cost me? Yeah, look, um, most of those 10 years of, of development were spent with a almost singular focus around cost structure because our belief is that in order to create large scale change, you have to give people price and performance that that actually works. Um, and so we've now developed bringing this commercial plant online here in Huntington Beach was a critical moment for us because we've been able to operate it in a way that that shows that, you know, we're in a good, good position to accomplish our, our cost structure objectives. And now when we build our next facilities, um, you know, we, we've got the ability to deliver on economics that are really attractive. So um, that's a really important part of our of our overall thesis. Um, and I, I think is a really important thing to consider in all of the sustainability efforts we've got, which is you, you got to have, yes, sustainability, but also price and performance. Well, about 20 years on to this, obviously you began this because you had a mission, you had a goal, you were fired up, like you said, about the whole concept. Do you feel more optimistic now having really gotten deep into this or do you feel less optimistic? Like, where do you stand personally now that you're on the forefront of something this big? You know, it's interesting. I actually feel both. I feel like uh, a, a, a deep sense of worry and and fear that we're going to move too slow and, and we aren't going to get there. And like, I, I really, I really feel that. I really feel like, um, like if you look at the trends and the data right now, everyone should worry. Like it's not, it's not looking good. <laughs> that's, that's just the truth. Right. Um, with that said, look, my bracelet, this is, this is, this is greenhouse gas. And, and for me, what, what, why that is so exciting is it shows that while the journey ahead is like going to be exceedingly difficult for us to win, I hate to, you know, don't mean to whatever, but like, that's just the truth, but it doesn't mean it's a foregone conclusion. Like mm. if, if we can turn greenhouse gas into a solid material, it shows that carbon doesn't have to go into the air. If we can make products that, that don't accumulate in environment, it means we don't have to keep on this plastic pathway. And so I'm at once very worried. I'm also like dramatically optimistic because I can see that, you know, it, it was a dream 20 years ago. Now I've got a huge, you know, not to overstate it, but we have a, we have a, a large commercial scale production plant. I can go into stores around the world. I mean, over 3,000 locations are now carrying products that reverse the flow of carbon that aren't made from plastic. That doesn't mean to say it's it's a it's a slam dunk, but it means it's possible. Like we we can do it. <laughs> so yeah. I'm I'm also very very optimistic. And um, you know, I was in New York uh, a week or two ago uh, and was part of the the climate march on uh, I think it was two Fridays ago. And um, you know, I see all these people marching and, and they care so much like the world wants change. 
It really does. And, and that has been the, the, the single most important factor in spurring corporate change and corporate mandates. And then that's translated up to legislative mandates. Um, and so I'm optimistic because people do actually care. The technologies are, are real and they're possible. Um, so it's kind of like, guys, this is going to be really hard, but like we can do it. We really can. Well, you know, growing up as a millennial myself, as a 90s kid, we were presented a, a, as a children of this dichotomy between if you focus on the environment, you'll be poor all of your life. A movie like Clueless, 1993 or something like that. The dad's a lawyer and he says, if you want to focus on the environment, you'll always be broke. So don't do that. But here you are and you've gotten quite a pretty massive amount of funding for your company. Do you think that that dynamic has changed, that people can pursue individual personal wealth through tackling these larger things, whereas before that might not have been thought to be the case? Well, however you feel about Elon, that guy has created a fortune off of largely, you know, creating a green product. Um, and he figured out that if you can make that product cool, people, you know, people want to be in the space. Um, and I think the more examples we see of that, that's going to create a really important um, dynamic. I remember when I graduated from college, I think like half of my graduating class applied to go into investment banking. There was a lot of uh, computer programming interest. If you imagine a world where, you know, everyone's getting into environmental technology or, or those kinds of solutions, you know, you're just putting a lot of brain power and then, and then capital into the space. So I actually think it's a really important part of the overall equation about how we do get this done. Um, so, yeah, I think it's possible. I think we're starting to see examples of it. And the more of those examples we see, the, the more this this whole thing will accelerate. Yeah, because, you know, in the past, what was a niche thing or you know, Whole Foods, these, these ideas, they were small and they're just they're growing. And Patagonia, that CEO, he just shocked the world by giving away all of his wealth. We're seeing some new things that are developing that I feel like we haven't really seen before. And the concept that you can build a company that's worth billions of dollars in this space feels to me, kind of new. Maybe it's just because I'm learning more about this through conversations like this, but it feels like there's more money being thrown at these kinds of things. And the fact that you're partnering with a Nike, which has historically always been seen as part of the problem in many ways, the fact that they could be part of the solution, that's what a lot of people I've talked to are talking about that seems exciting because, like you mentioned, it's the companies that have the ability to mobilize change the fastest. Whether we like it or not, it's a Nike yeah. who's able to make wholesale change faster than anybody else, and then that flows to the legislative change, not the other way around. It's not, unfortunately... The government's not telling Nike what to do. Nike's telling the government what to do. But, you know, for example, McDonald's incorporates your plastic or they incorporate an impossible burger or these things. Suddenly, boom, massive change is possible. How do you feel about that dynamic between corporations? Is that tide changing a little bit? What you're saying is is so important and so spot on. Um, you know, corporations kind of get this bad you know, bad name just by virtue of being a big corporation. But actually, from my perspective, where the, the sea change is, is on the corporate level. Governments move slow. They often get things wrong. Um, where the where the big movement has been is is corporations have like across the board been been putting mandates on net zero targets, um, you know, reducing their use of plastic. I mean, the equivalency would be imagine the US government said, like, put in a, a law that said, you know, by 2050, 
uh, you know, all these segments have to be at net zero. Like <laughs> you'd never see that, but these corporations are doing it themselves. And, and so that's a real thing that's happening. I mean, I think the, um, the B, B corporation is a, is a good, good example. They, they have this moniker, which is, uh, turning business into a force for good. Mm-hmm. And, um, companies are saying that they, they want to be a part of that. Now, to be fair though, um, part of that is just because you have great people in a lot of these organizations, that's real. And I think people often under appreciate that. It's just like, Oh, corporations are bad and evil. They're just trying to make money. Look, a lot of people are trying to make money and that's, that's human nature, but there's also a lot of really good people in these corporations that, that actually care a lot. But I believe the beating heart and soul of all this change is coming from like just consumers who, who truly care. And, uh, if they didn't, the, the, the corporate response would be very different, but we have seen in all these marches and all these social media campaigns and all these speeches by everybody from, you know, middle school students through college kids and all like this stuff matters when people are marching in the streets, like it is actually creating real change. And I've just seen that in the 20 years that, that I've been doing this, where it used to be like, we should probably do this to like, no, we have to do this. Like if we're going to survive as a company, we have to, to make this change because people want that and are increasingly demanding that. Um, and, and I think it's important not to, to lose sight of, of that, like, the, the beating heart does come from this consumer shift. And that has been a function of like when you and I were growing up, you know, we talked about climate change, but it was still kind of, uh, you know, like, well, let's see what happens. I mean, you know, every year seems to be like the next worst fire season in California. No um, like the stuff that we see and observe, it's like, wow, like the earth feels like it's kind of falling apart. And, right. and that has cre- that's heightened the, the, the sense of like demand that is, is driving all this stuff. I completely agree. And that's the kind of thing that is always so frustrating about the people who are climate change deniers. They say, oh, the earth has gone through cycles of heating and cooling and it's natural and all that. It's like, okay, but look at the oceans. Look at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Look at how much plastic is in the ocean. That's man-made. <laughs> There's no reality where this Texas-sized landmass of plastic floating in the ocean is not human-caused. So regardless of whether climate change is man-made or not, we're screwing up the world in very big, obvious ways that we can see and that everybody knows. <laughs> like, Every time you see a Starbucks cup floating in in the ocean, you know where that's coming from. That wouldn't have happened naturally. So I've always found that to be such a weird argument to make. Like, okay, maybe it's not the climate that's changing, you could say, but the environment is changing in a negative way. Every beach in the world has plastic crap washing up on it constantly. There's nowhere in the world that doesn't. So we have some issues that we need to solve, right? I. I like what you said about, um, you know, plastic pollution is, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not moving closer to the sun and that's, what's causing plastic pollution. Right. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I've heard the argument about the, the cycles and is it, could this just be a natural cycle? By the way, it's important to note that, you know, it's now becoming public knowledge that one of the key, um, strategies of certain companies was to just create confusion in the space. Just, just create confusion, right? And so, well, just ask aren't we questions. Through, yeah, aren't we going through natural cycles? Well, what I what I think is interesting about this is, um, okay, let's let's take that argument for a second. 
um, you and I can't measure whether we're getting closer to the, the sun or if we're going through a natural cycle or not. But you know who can are scientists. That's what they do. Right. They measure ice cores and they, you know, they have ways to determine what cycles we're going through, how close we are or aren't to the sun. Okay, so are those scientists saying that that's happening? No. All of those scientists are saying that's not what's happening. It's because we're dumping a whole bunch of heat trapping gas in the atmosphere. Right. And I think the other part of this is like, look, the, the basic just, just math of this thing is actually quite simple. CO2 and methane, the two primary greenhouse gases, are heat trapping gases, right? And so you can do your own experiments with this. But if you, if you have a whole bunch of heat trapping gas and you apply you know, sunlight or any other source of heat, that's going to stay hot for a long time versus just air that doesn't, isn't filled with CO2 or methane. So we're dumping all this heat trapping gas into the air. What's going to happen? <laughs> the air is going to heat up. Right. It's really simple. Right. Um, and so if you look at all the charts, okay, CO2 and methane have both been going up dramatically. And those charts match up almost exactly to the rise in temperature, which also makes just very, very good, simple sense. Um, so it's unfortunate that this campaign of confusion has you know, been fairly effective. We live in you know, the disinformation age, and so it's not overly surprising. But I think now we're at a tipping point, and I don't know if you feel this, but I certainly do. I feel like the past, God, even just like two or three years, it feels like the world's natural events and all these fires and heat waves yeah. and floods. I mean, Pakistan, like all these things that have happened, it's kind of like, guys, we're beyond, like, like it's all happening, right? right? Like, and, and, and that everything that was predicted, like we're, we're seeing it. So whatever the, you know, like we got, we got to just focus on action at this point. Yeah. And when the political pundits and the purveyors of disinformation, when they're able to take pictures of an asteroid as they crash a spacecraft into its millions of miles away with pinpoint accuracy, I'll take them a lot more seriously. But until then, I'm going to trust what scientists say, because scientists have done a lot cooler shit. Turns out mathematics is pretty awesome when you're good at it. So I tend to believe the things that scientists say. Call me crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, again, if 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 the argument is is something that is something like a natural cycle, and that and that is only known through science and scientists, and if all those same scientists are saying, well, that's not what's happening, then it's sort of like, well, then who exactly is telling you that we're getting closer to the right. to the sun? Like, who's telling you that there's a cycle here that's happening? If it's just yeah. you feel that way, well, I think, you know, we should look harder into those things. But I, I do think we should be open to all those questions. But let's also be open to digging into the answer and coming up with, with logical conclusions. And, I, and to your point, I do feel that things have changed in the last couple of years. Again, it's, it's something that I've noticed and, and getting to talk with people such as yourself has helped me with that. But I do feel that this need for action is here and also that never have these types of solutions been more attractive for people who don't necessarily care because – there are various booms and busts for just if you're just an entrepreneur and you don't care about anything except making money. There have been various booms and busts. It's like, oh, uh, cannabis is a new thing. Everybody gets into cannabis, regardless of whether they care about it or not. They just do it because they think they can make a lot of money. To me, it seems like never has it been more attractive for somebody to get into these types of spaces, even if they're so cynical that the only thing that they do care about is earning money. It's like people are investing in this. Money is being made available for companies like yours and solutions like yours 
So I would say that if people are purely acting out of self-interest, it still makes sense to do this kind of thing because it is in your self-interest to build a company or to try to solve some of these issues instead of just complaining about them. Well, I think that the key is, are you creating core value, core long-term value? So, um, you know, there, there's going to be, there's going to be every effort's important. So I don't mean to, to downplay certain efforts, but I guess my point is like, um, you don't want it to just be a marketing exercise, right? You want to create core value. And, and what I mean by that is like, take greenhouse gas. Like what, what we um, are really proud of is turning something that would otherwise go into the air and now you've, you've, you've turned it into value, like tangible value. That's creating value for society. Like otherwise all this stuff's out in the air, we didn't do anything with it. Like now we can turn it into useful stuff. That That's, that's a value driver for society. Um, and so... I think if, if so long as we continue to challenge ourselves to do that, right? Like, if you can come up with a, a an engine that is twenty percent more efficient, you just saved massive amounts of carbon from going into the air, like, and you created real long term core value. Um, I mean, if if you can find ways to do anything more efficiently that has less energy use, less carbon intensity, less resource consumption. You're contributing. So there are so many ways to get into this space that also contribute to the economy, to the bottom line. And if you can find that combo, you've got a, you've got a winning solution. And if a cow belching can produce $20, and like you said, that can fund somebody's college if there's a thousand cows. If people see it as not just spewing waste, but spewing money into the air, money that can be reclaimed. That's a very, very different thing because nobody wants to just blast dollar bills into the air. And you yeah. have done that in a very clever way. It's just super I mean, easy to see. Imagine imagine if the world and all of its entrepreneurs and, and business people were all competing for that, that smokestack over there. And they just saw, wow, all that CO2, which by the way, CO2 is nature's favorite food source. Every piece of lettuce that you ever ate was just, you know, nature, a plant pulling CO2 out of the air. So we demonize greenhouse gas, but nature loves greenhouse gas. So if we saw it the same way as a resource and, and people saw that, that, that smokestack, that power plant, all that CO2 going out and said, whoa, that's, that's all, that's untapped value right there. Imagine a world like that where we're competing to gobble up that stuff. I mean, imagine if people were building direct air capture units to just pull as much CO2 out as they can because they can turn it into, you know, really useful stuff. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's a vision for scalability that I think is really worth fighting for. That's so true. And when you said that, it reminded me of the graphics card boom of Bitcoin mining. Everybody's mining. They're all getting a warehouse. Imagine if people were doing that, if it made financial or economic sense for people to individually be sequestering carbon and they could make money from it. it Bitcoin showed us how fast that can go and how quickly that can spread if the incentive model is there and if the tech is there. So I think you're absolutely right about that. If someone heard you say that just now and just got an idea in their head about how to individualize carbon capture, uh, beautiful thing. I mean, look, we're at the very beginning, right? And we need so many uh, efforts to 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 tackle this this mountain. Look, we as an example, air carbon alone certainly isn't going to get there. We do hope, however, that we can have a uh, you know a big chunk of the pie when you go on Wikipedia 50 years from now and you go to the article, how did humanity you know end climate change? We hope that air carbon is a is is in that article and part of the pie, but it's going to be a lot of stuff and. Um, 
you know, it's got to be an all of the above solution. And, and the more people, to your point, that we can get in this, um, that's, that's what we need. Well, how do you feel? We know on a, if you look on social media, as we all are, there's a climate of people are burnt out on negativity. You can see that people are burnt out on social media. They're burnt out on hearing bad news all the time. We know that the news cycle exists just to give people bad news, bad news, bad news. A lot of the climate change forms is bad news, bad news, bad news. So people just kind of want to shut that out. How do you think that people can embrace what is actually happening, embrace the truth, but not just become hopelessly depressed by the stuff that they're reading and then flip that switch to say, I'm going to take some action because I can make a difference? You know, we've been thinking about that a lot recently. Um, you know, what is the where, where can we sort of like center our our thoughts and beliefs around that that acknowledge the bad stuff, but also get you really excited um, and, and one of the things that we've realized is, you know, greenhouse gas is kind of a great metaphor for this in the sense that, um, yeah, it, it's been doing a lot of bad, right? Like it's the cause of, of global warming. And I'm proud to use that term. Um, nice. uh, but it's also the source of so much good. And, and so what it means is that like every, everything has kind of a universe built into it. You, for instance, have in a, a truly endless amount of thoughts, ideas, concepts, feelings, emotions that no, no one will ever know the totality of. But there's also parts of you and me that like you just you've never explored. And, and so there's a little bit of like uh, indefinability in everything. That's just that's just the nature of the universe we live in. We can't ever reach the end of the universe. We can't ever reach. There's there's always something more to discover in everything, right? And so that's been true of greenhouse gas. All of a sudden, now, who thought you know twenty years ago I could be making a that's product crazy. out of greenhouse gas? But that's true for everything. It's true for each one of us. It's true for the challenges that we look at, and 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 that's deeply hopeful for me because. It's kind of like keep looking. There's something in there that 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 I can guarantee you haven't seen yet. And when you look at climate change, it's like I can promise you that the future is not set yet. Like that that's one thing I can say is there's a whole series and set of, of decisions that we can make, things that we can explore, things that we can do that will change the course. Don't know what it is, but this thing's not set yet. And and that's just a fundamental truth of the universe we live in. And I think that's deeply inspiring. Yeah, I think so too. And I had no idea, to your point, that what is on your wrist was possible until I discovered what you're all about. And I think most people wouldn't have thought that. So it is just one thing or a breakthrough or a twist that can completely reframe everything. It's always possible. And I think that's the allure of science. That's the allure of technology is that you have this sense of we might figure it out. But the only way that we're going to figure it out is if smart people commit themselves to figuring it out, to those sticky notes, to slogging through 10 years of stress and depression, you know, all of those things that went along with you and your journey. Somebody's got to do that. And that somebody should be me and that somebody should be you and that somebody should be anybody who's listening, who's thinking, hey, I want to start a business or I want to make a difference. You got to try because, again, nobody's going to get there if you don't try. You weren't just going to wake up one day with carbon on your wrist. It took you 20 years to get here. You have to try. That, that's, the, that's the most important. You got you to gotta start. And you have no idea what, where that journey is going to go. I mean, I started with a newspaper article about 
methane burps from cows. <laughs> um, and but in, until you get in and until you start, that I can that that I can also say, yeah, nothing's going to happen there either. Um, and and you, you said smart people. I would I would argue that it's not necessarily smart people, although everyone's got their own feelings on on that term. I think it's just the other part that you said, which is you just got to keep going. You, you just like, you're going to encounter so many bumps in the road. You just will. Um, but, but to the extent you can stay with it, that I think is the single most important ingredient, um, to, to getting where we need to go. Like that Einstein quote that the only reason he solved problems is because he was more persistent than others. Uh, honestly, I, I, that's top three best, best quotes he's got, maybe even the best. Well, that makes sense. Well, hey, it's it's absolutely remarkable. And again, looking at everything that you have done, it, it just feels too good to be true. Your website is just one of the most effective sales tools ever. I just go through it. Just, I was just blown away. That's why I knew I had to talk to you because when you read it, it, every piece of it makes so much sense. And it's not just how it's done. It's the way that it's done. And it just represents something that's so new and so groundbreaking, even though it's not new. It's something you've been working on for 20 years. But it really feels like the kind of solution that I think many people just intuitively believe is impossible because it's how could it be, right? How could something be that effective and that simple, quote unquote, and make so much sense? But of course, that's why you've got so many backers and that's why you have such serious interest for major players. And and that's why I have so many gray hairs in my, my beard. <laughs> yeah, you look but better I, than me, man. That's why I don't grow out my beard. <laughs> <laughs> When I when I when I, I started this, I was I was a young man who couldn't even grow a beard very well. Um, look, it, it's uh, it's been a long journey. It it has, um, uh, and and to your point, there are plenty of really tough times on that journey. But um, our core ingredient was was simply that we didn't stop. Honestly, that that was the the biggest thing for us, and we did believe in in the vision and the importance of what this could be. Um, and in many ways it feels like day one, right? Like as proud of, as we are of, of where we are, we're also tiny and a tiny, tiny is not even, you know, of where we need to go. Uh, and part of that is actually a little frustrating. Like we're about to build our next plant and that'll be great for us in terms of our growth trajectory. But then when you stack it up against the size of the plastics market and the you know, climate, climate, it's like, oh my God, like how are we going to do this in, in the time that, that we need? And so we're starting to look at licensing and just one of the next big, big sort of like tasks for us is figuring out a model for how we do get the technology out in a much more broad based way versus us just building sequentially one plant, then one plant, then one plant. So that's a big focus for us right now. Um, but look, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a hard road ahead and we're going to need a lot of partners to get there. Um, but we're, you know, step by step. Well, if anybody's poised to do it, you are. I have total faith that you'll figure out something massively bigger and better than what you've got just based on what you've been up to so far. Uh, we have reached the end of our hour right now, so I would like you to close this episode out. How do you, anything you want to promote, any last words you want to say, finish us off here. Uh, look, uh, to the extent you'd like to know more about our company, uh, we're at newlight.com. Um, and check us out. We'd love to hear from you. And, um, you know, we're always looking for, for new partners and, and uh, new allies in this. And if you'd like to, you know, join with us or in any of those forms or fashions, we'd love to hear from you. So, um, yeah, we appreciate it. 
Well, that's fantastic. Thank, thank you, thank thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it as no, well. No, thank you for joining me. It's, uh, it's just my mind is just blown. Um, it's a deep honor just to be sitting across from you, and I'm very glad that you stuck with it all these years. I'm glad that some part of you said, "Keep going, keep going, keep going," and uh, you're certainly a deep inspiration to me. And I know pretty much anybody who hears about your story, they're going to feel the same way. So. I thank, thank you, you again for joining me. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. over.